The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me uh, to 1 Peter chapter 5. Lord willing, uh, this will be the last Sunday when we uh, open in 1 Peter to this series. In this series, like maybe not the last time ever in your life you're opening to 1 Peter. But um, in this series, we're going to close it out today. Are you guys here today? Everybody just kind of like in this little funk. Are y'all just like summered out and you're just, okay, yeah, okay. But, all right, we got to go, right? So, so like pull it together uh, and let's, let's see God for all that he is. I'm not trying to manufacture something in you, but boy, do I want you to see what God has for us in this, okay? So first Peter, uh, Lord willing, we're going to finish this up. And Peter here in this this closing passage is going to give these parting words. Now, I started thinking about this. Um, you know, there, there are some things you say uh, kind of when you're, when you're leaving. Uh, like, like with our little dog. We're trying to get our little dog used to uh, an, his new home and all this kind of stuff. Uh, Candace Johnson, the, the dog whisperer back there, um, she said, you know, one of the things that will help your dog is, is when you leave and you have to leave your dog, say the same thing to your dog every time. So here it is, all these years later, I don't know, how long, how long have we had whiskers? Yeah, like six years or something like that. So to this day, six years later, every time we leave the house, we say, whiskers, you be good. You watch the house. We'll be back. That's what we say every time. And he just kind of looks at us like, are you sure? <laughs> you know, like, but it, it seems to calm him, I guess, you know. Um, when, when we go, this started when Lana and I were dating and, and, uh, and we got married and I would travel. We'd travel for the holidays and we'd go see family. And, and uh, before we'd leave, the, we'd pull, as we're pulling away, pulling out of the driveway, seeing her mom or seeing my family or whatever, we always know what we're going to do. As we're pulling away, honk, 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 you know, every time. It's our little parting words, right? Honk, 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 you know. And I don't know what her mom thinks, like, why three? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Like, what's she thinking? Um, and then I, I was thinking about, you know, my son is away working this weekend, and, and uh, he was going down with, uh, with, with Erskine's sons um, to work at an, an event down in the lower part of the state. And uh, Lana drove him to the shop um, the morning that he was leaving for them to go over there and so his truck wouldn't sit there the whole time. And she's driving him there, and as she's driving, she's having these parting words to him, Right. He's, he's 18 years old and, and, uh, and all these things. But she's saying to him, now, you know that you're the youngest one going on this trip. There are men that you're working with. And just because they do certain things, you know, that doesn't mean that you have to do certain things. Moms say this, these sort of things, right? And all the kids in the room are like, yeah, moms say these things. And Micaiah, 18 years old, is, mom, I know this. I got this, right? These are parting words. There are certain things that you say in in situations where you're leaving or you're leaving off. And I think that's what we see this morning as we come to 1 Peter. We come to the close of of this letter to these scattered churches throughout Asia Minor. He's writing this letter that will circulate through all of them to these scattered Christians who are facing persecution. And in these last verses, 6 through 14, Peter is saying, honk, honk, honk. Now, you be good. You watch the house. We'll be back. Now, just because they're all doing it doesn't mean that you have to do it. These are Peter's 
parting words. So if you will, look with me as we read through verses 6 through 14. Peter says, Peter writes, Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This morning, from this passage, I would like to give you five admonitions or parting words from Peter. The first, don't try to exalt your strength over God's. Don't try to exalt your strength over God's. He says this in verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. For weeks now, we have been talking about suffering, and I just made a list. I just walked back through the letter and made a list. I'm kind of like Sheldon from the Big Bang Theory. If I were to make a list of all the things that make me happy, lists would be at the top of that list, right? And so this is, this is helpful for me. If it doesn't help you, it helps me, all right? So for weeks, we've been talking about suffering. And in one one, he immediately calls them elect exiles, And in doing so, he's going to teach them through this letter that suffering is just a normal part of what it means to be a Christ follower. That suffering will come into your life. In in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. He's going to teach, we've seen him teach through this letter that suffering is a necessary means of our being conformed to Christ. So it's normal and it's necessary in, uh, in chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus was the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, he was chosen and precious. What he's showing us there, what we learned, is that, that when we suffer in this life as believers, it does not indicate that God is displeased with us. That Jesus suffered, and he was chosen and precious in God's sight. Peter went on in chapter 2, verse 9, to call us the chosen race, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, the people for his own possession. So even when you suffer, don't think, God hates me right now. It's, it's a mark, actually, of his favor on your life. In chapter 2, verse 12, Peter wrote, Keep your conduct honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, what Peter taught was that suffering becomes this means for evangelism. That when you and I suffer in this life and we suffer well, not refusing, not, not leaving off, but, in, but, 
choosing to glorify God in the midst of our suffering, it becomes this witness and this testimony to a watching world and will lead some of them to a crisis of faith where they will receive the gospel. In chapter 2, verse 21, he said, For to, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered, leaving you an example. So suffering for the believer creates these opportunities for us to follow Christ, to be like Jesus, to follow his example. In chapter 4, verse 1, Peter wrote, Arm yourselves, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. In other words, choosing to suffer in order to be faithful to God is a means or an avenue through which the believer is set free from the grip of sin. It displays the fact. When, when, when you look at, if I, if I follow God here, I'm going to suffer, and you choose to follow God anyway, suffering comes, it displays that that thing that tempted you, that sin, no longer has reign over your life. In chapter 4, verse 16, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Suffering creates an opportunity for worship. And I've not exhausted all of what Peter has taught us about suffering, but for weeks now we've been looking at this, this topic of suffering. And I'll be honest with you, it's, it's been quite exhausting I mean, it's exhausting for me to come to you. Like, I would love to, to come to you and say, man, I gotta, I've got this message of happy, clappy joy to give to you this morning. But I don't get to do that. Not as I walk through First Peter. I can tell you about joy, that we've been born again to a living hope, that, that there is an inheritance that is kept for us, that is imperishable. I can, that's, that's joy but the subject has been suffering. And even though sometimes we know all these things, we've, we've learned all these things, you've been faithful to come and, and listen and participate, even through the summer, to hear these things. We know these things. But still, when suffering comes to your house, the temptation becomes real. The temptation, when it comes to you, it, it becomes, I think I'll just quit following God. The temptation presents itself for you to begin to accuse God of things that are not true of Him. God, you just don't care about me. God, you don't love me. God, you're cruel. Why would I follow you, God? The temptation is there in those moments. So this morning, this first admonition from Peter, this don't try to exalt your strength over God's, I would present to you, there's a temptation for you when suffering comes to your house to say, my way's better. I'll just leave off from following God because God obviously doesn't have this thing and I can get myself out of this and I can alleviate the suffering in my life and you exalt your own strength over against God's. And Peter says to us, don't do that. When suffering comes to your house, that is exactly the time for you to humble yourself under God's mighty hand. To receive it. To look for God's grace in the midst of it. And so this morning, in verses 5 and 6, in this admonition, don't try to exalt your strength over God's. I just want to give you two more reasons. I just gave you a list, but let me give you two more that are here. Number one... Another reason to humble yourself under God's mighty hand in the midst of suffering is because it is a good thing to fear God's opposition. 
Verse 5, he said that God opposes the proud. I would just pose the question to you. Can you think of anything more detrimental, more frightening, more catastrophic than having God as your enemy? I mean, you go see the blockbuster movies of the summer. What is that one you keep wanting me to go see? 47 meters down or something like that. These sharks and all this kind of stuff. You know, look, that thing, terrifying as it may be, pales in comparison to having God as your enemy. Think of anything that Hollywood could create and have you scared to death. I mean, this Stephen King's classic It's coming out, and my son's like, oh, i got to go see that, you know. And I'm like, no, I don't have to go see that, right? You know, I don't like horror movies. They scare me to death. But it pales in comparison to knowing that God opposes you. That he's your enemy. And the flip side of that is a reason to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God when suffering comes to your house is not, not only the fear of God's opposition, but the desire for God's grace. The flip side of that in verse 5, he said, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God's grace is the very opposite of having God as an enemy. God's grace means that in the midst of your suffering, it may not be pleasant, but you will have everything that you possibly will need. But you will know that he's with you. God's grace empowers a person to patiently endure suffering, knowing that in time, God will exalt him or her. You have a choice in the midst of suffering. You can, you can say, forget this. I know better. And you can exalt your strength against God's and you will find he becomes your enemy or you can humble yourself in the midst of it and say God I don't necessarily like what I'm going through but Lord I know that you can work even through this to bring about my good and your glory so God help me to humble myself and submit under the weight of your mighty hand That's the choice you have. And I would say to you, the admonition from Peter today is don't try to exalt your strength over God's. Second, don't hold on to your anxieties. Verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This casting is not really uh, the, the main verb of this passage. It really kind of goes along with what he's just said. How do you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God? By casting your anxieties on him. Sometimes Christians will say things like, Okay, pastor, I hear you. I'm supposed to humble myself under God's mighty hand. I'm supposed to accept and receive this, this suffering that's come into my life. But they do so in such a way that they just kind of grit their teeth. Okay, I'll humble myself. And let me just pose the question. Let me ask you. In that moment, that posture, that demeanor, does that display humility or pride? I would suggest to you that that displays pride. And let me, let me explain it to you. When you say to God, okay, God, I'm supposed to humble myself under you, so I'm going to try to do that, God, because I love you and I, I, I know that you're good. But you go into it and you're worried. How in the world is this thing going to happen? 
How in the world is all this thing going to work out good? And what you're really saying is, God, I don't really trust you to bring this thing about. God, really, who I trust is myself. God, if I can't control everything, then I can't let it go. Because, God, really, the only God that I trust is me. And I know this is difficult. One of the hardest things that I will ever counsel people in as a pastor is how do you get rid of anxiety and worry? Well, Peter says the way that we humble ourselves is by letting go. And this is not simply to to let go and let God, that famous statement from the Keswick Convention. There's there's more to it than that. We're going to see in in verse 12 that God causes us to stand, to stand firm in the true grace of God. So there's a call to stand. There's a call to action. This is more than just let God let go. But the key here to casting all your anxieties on God is to understand what is also in verse 7. Oftentimes we look at it and we say, cast all your anxieties on God, and we forget to read the rest. Peter says, because he cares for you. If, if God doesn't care for you, if, 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 he, if he does not care for you, if you, casting worries on God wouldn't be comforting at all. If, if God couldn't afford to help you, there's no comfort coming in, in casting your cares on him. If his resources are tapped and, and he can't do anything about your problem, what good is it for me to say to you, cast your anxieties on him? You have the understanding that he's bankrupt and he can't do anything for you. Or if he's aloof and he didn't care about you and you, and you get the impression that he's not really listening to you, and that brings no comfort to you. If he's apathetic or if he's cruel toward you, then this brings no comfort whatsoever. But the Bible doesn't simply leave us with cast all your anxieties on him and leave us wondering about the, the resourcefulness or the compassion of God. Instead, it goes on and it tells us, God cares for you. And Christian, as your pastor today, I would simply just ask you to let those words sink in. God cares for you. Those are life-altering words. When we understand that God truly cares not, not only, I mean, he especially, specifically cares about the, the condition of our souls, but do you understand that God cares about the details of your life as well? That God knows the suffering that you're in. He knows what He's doing in the midst of that suffering, and He cares for you in the midst of it. Let that sink in. Psalm 55 verse 22 says, Cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Jesus, when He was teaching there on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, said, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? 
Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? We... um, planted this bulb that someone gave us. Lana brought it home from, from um, a friend, and they planted this bulb in our yard. And it, it had some shoots coming off of it when we planted it. It was just a couple months back. We just dug a hole and just stuck this thing in the ground. And, and our fortune with planting things around our house is, you know, not very, not very good. You know, we tend to kill things rather than, like, grow things. You know, they turn brown and, and just get dry up. But this thing just took root. And all of a sudden, the, the, the shoots that are coming off of this thing, they just really brightened up, and they became green. And all of a sudden, they started getting taller. I mean, I was shocked by this. I'm not used to seeing that around my house. Like, what's happening to this thing? This is a miracle, you know. But couldn't find out that's what really happens, you know. And these things come shooting out on it, and there's these buds on top, and, and they, they get bigger by the day, and they get fuller as the days go by. Lana's out in the yard, and she's working on something, and, and she had come up to where I was, and when she came, she noticed these things, and they were just so full, and they just looked like they were just going to pop any second. And I left her up there working, and I came back down to the house, and as I came back down to the house, I saw that thing that was about to just pop had popped, and there was this gorgeous white flower. And in a matter of minutes, it had just popped open, and it was gorgeous. And I sent, took a picture, and I sent it to her, and we talked about how amazing, how quick that thing happened and all that. And within a day or two, it realized where it was, and it had <laughs> wilted, right? It had died right there. Oh, this is the Ogle house, oh, yeah, right? And I can't help but think about that when I read Matthew 6. If God so clothes the lilies of the valley that are here today and thrown into the oven tomorrow, you who are of way more worth than they, why do you worry about what you're going to wear? Cast all your anxieties on Him. Understand that He cares for you. Third admonition from Peter's summary here in 1 Peter don't be passive. Don't be passive in your following Christ. Verses 8 and 9, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Sometimes the certainty that God cares for you might lead some people to passivity. God cares for me. I don't have a care in the world. Christians can walk around so enamored by the fact that God cares for me. I I don't have anything in the world to worry about. They they walk around like that Lego movie song, you know, everything's awesome, right? You know, everything's awesome. You know, it's just, it's what it is. It's awesome. You know, God cares for me. I don't have to fight because God fights for me. Peter wants us to be reminded that Christians, even though God cares for us, are in real danger. If we weren't in real danger, Peter would not have written what he just wrote. 
If, if we didn't really have to be alert, be watchful, be sober-minded, God's on patrol, then he would not have told us that our enemy, the devil, the adversary, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. When a lion stalks its prey, does it usually roar? Not while the hunt's going on, right? Unless it's like this young lion just learning to hunt, excited about the hunt, and he just gets a little overzealous and roar and scares the prey away, right? But most of the time, the roar comes afterwards. The, you, you see a lion, you watch the Discovery Channel or something on YouTube or whatever, and you see this lion, and he's, he's low through the grass. And, and you think, man, his shoulder blades are about to just pierce through his, his, his flesh, you know, and he's just... He's, prowling through the grass, and he sneaks up on this thing, and then he attacks. And once he takes this animal down and squeezes the life out of this animal, now clamping down on its throat, he lets out a roar. He lets out a roar to, to signal the fact that he has been victorious in this hunt, Sometimes a roar comes because he, there are others that want to come in and capitalize on his or her kill. And he, she roars to let the others know, stay away. Now the pride will come in and they will share this thing together, but there's roaring going on because it becomes territorial. Lions don't roar when they're in the middle of the hunt because they think that's going to help them catch their prey. Instead, they wait until it's over. Lions roar to either celebrate or to terrify. When a, when a lion is challenged, when, when the, the king of, of the, the pride is challenged for his supremacy there, he will roar to scare away his competitors. I would submit to you that this is exactly what Satan is trying to do with Christians. That there is something to be said here for the fact that Peter says that our enemy, the devil, the adversary, prowls around like a roaring lion. He prowls around roaring because for the Christian, if you are truly a child of God, Satan can't really harm you. Now, there can be some real hurt that can come in this world. You, you read the story of Job, and, and God said, Okay, devil, have at Job. Just don't touch him. And, and everything that Job has is taken away from him. And that hurt. That was real. That was real suffering. But in the end, Satan really couldn't do anything to truly harm Job because God prevented it. I think that's the picture here that Peter would have us to see about Satan in our lives. If you are God's child, he can't truly harm you. His only hope is to frighten you into abandoning God. His only hope is to come into your life and roar so loudly that, that you will be afraid and you will run away from following God. This is what Satan would love to see happen. This is, this is what happens in persecution or the threat of persecution. Persecution comes, I think, largely when Satan is behind that, it is coming because he is trying to frighten Christ's followers away from following Christ. The Bible teaches a doctrine of perseverance of the saints, that those who are truly God's children will persevere all the way to the end. 
That at the end of their lives, they will be found to be believing, trusting, following Christ. And Satan, his, his agenda in this, he's real, by the way. For Sunday school lessons this morning, I'm thankful for teachers that will stand up and say, this is a weird story, but it's a literal story. It's true. That there's a real devil that we face. And Satan's agenda in this is to scare you away. Listen to how Tom Schreiner said it. Tom Schreiner in his commentary said, The devil roars like a lion to induce fear in the people of God. In other words, persecution is the roar by which he tries to intimidate believers in the hope that they will capitulate at the prospect of suffering. The roaring of the devil is the crazed anger of a defeated enemy. And if they do not fear his ferocious bark, they will never be consumed by his bite. We are in real danger, but the danger is not necessarily what you might think. The danger comes from an enemy who all he can do is roar at you. He's seeking those whom he can scare away from following Christ. That's why I think Peter says, therefore, don't be passive in this. Peter said, be sober-minded. The opposite of, of sober is drunk. And I think the picture here would, would be for us, don't stagger around in your thinking. Don't go through this life as, as a Christian just kind of staggering around, not giving serious thought to the fact that we have an enemy who's real, who would love to, to cause us to stop following Jesus. Be vigilant in that. Be sober-minded. Don't be drunk with just the happy, clappy thoughts of this world. Be sober-minded in that. Peter also said, not only be sober-minded, well, let me just, before I'm getting ahead of myself, that, that phrase, sober-minded, this is the third time he's used it. He used it in chapter 4, but he also used it in chapter 1, verse 13. There he said, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you'll remember all the way back to chapter 1, as I walked through that passage, when, when he said there, preparing your minds for action, we talked about the phrase is, gird up the loins of your mind. And I gave you that illustration that in the garb of the day in biblical times that men wore these long robes and, and they couldn't really run or fight in these things. So if, if that ever, that need presented itself, they would take that robe and they would pull it up between their legs and they would tuck it into their belt so that they turned their robe into shorts so that they could run into battle or run into whatever they needed to run into. That's the image here that God has for us. Peter says, be sober-minded, knowing that you have an enemy that prowls around like a roaring lion. He also says, be watchful. The opposite of watchful is to be asleep. And for, for Peter, I think this was particularly poignant, this concept of being watchful. And if you think back on the, on the life of Peter, especially when he's walking with Jesus, you understand why this is particularly poignant or, or important for Peter. Um, Luke 22, verses 31 through 34, in the upper room at the, last, at, at the, at the Lord's Supper, when Jesus celebrates there with his, his disciples, Jesus told Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has, has demanded to have you. 
that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said to him, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. And then later on, Mark 14, verses 37 through 38, in the garden, as they left out from that supper together and they go into the garden and Jesus is praying, how is it that Jesus finds Peter later on? Watching, awake, he finds him asleep. He's not anything, he's, he's the opposite of watchful. Jesus finds him there sleeping in the garden. And, and Jesus said, when he came and he found him asleep, he said, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And Peter learned that there is no time for us to be passive at all. We cannot afford to be asleep. Sure, God cares for us. Jesus fights for us and he will ultimately keep us, but he calls us to engage in the battle. And Peter's language for that is, be sober-minded, be watchful for your enemy. The adversary prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You better stay awake. You better be watchful. James 4, 7 said it this way, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. More than once, Peter made reference to entrusting ourselves to the God who cares for us and who judges justly. There there is a reality for us. There's a reality for us that we cannot be passive in following Christ, that we must be actively engaged in the battle knowing that there is a real battle. And guess what? We don't somehow achieve one day, you know, next week or whatever, oh, and the battle stops. This will be a lifelong battle for us where Satan will continue to bring an onslaught of attack against us because he wants to frighten us away before it's too late for his, his purposes. So don't, don't get passive. Be active. Fourth, the fourth admonition from Peter in this passage is don't quit. Don't quit. This one goes hand in hand with with what I've just told you. Don't be passive and don't quit. Verses 10 and 11. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. One of the questions that I often get from someone who's going through suffering is how long? How long, Pastor? How long am I going to have to endure this? It just seems like it's been going on for so long. How long? And truthfully, this is another very difficult part of what I do, is I don't know. I, I can't tell any individual how long they're going to have to endure the suffering that they're going through. For some, the suffering that they will endure will last a few days, weeks others the suffering that you will endure will last a lifetime here's here's what peter says peter says here after you've suffered a little while 
That, that little phrase, a little while, to a person who's in the midst of intense, excruciating suffering, a little while can seem condescending and trite. When I look at that person as their pastor and say, the Bible tells us that it's a little while, it feels like I'm just careless in saying that to them. But I want to show you the, the contrasting language that is here in, in, in this passage. Peter says, he, he contrasts, he says, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ will restore him all these things. He contrasts this little while with eternal glory. After you suffer a little while, there's coming this eternal glory. And what Peter's point is, is that in the scope of your life, whether it's weeks or years, in the scope of eternity, your suffering here is minuscule. In the scope of eternity, what is 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 years? If we really grasp and understand what eternity is, That's a whisper. He also contrasts another very important couple of words here. He says, after you've suffered, he'll call you to glory. And perhaps we would miss this if we just read this passage, but if we allow the Bible to translate the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 accentuates what's being said here. It accentuates this contrast. 2 Corinthians 4.17, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. I mean, this light affliction and this heavy, weighty glory that is coming. Glory here that, that Peter says is coming to those who are suffering now it entails a few things. First, it entails being with Christ. Don't miss in this, this couple of verses here, verse 10, don't miss that it's Christ himself that will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The glory will be being with Christ. Glory not only is being with Christ, but that Christ will personally restore you. The word is, is a fishing word. It comes from mending their nets. When Peter would know all about this, when he would come in from fishing and he would sit down on the shore and he would mend those holes that were snagged on rocks and torn the nets. He would mend those things. This is the picture he has here that one day when you suffer, when glory comes, when you are with Christ, that Christ himself will mend you, that he will restore you, that he will confirm you, that you'll finally be on settled ground. Suffering in this life sometimes puts us on this unsteady, shaky ground where our faith is really tested. And the Bible here says that Jesus himself will set our feet on this solid rock where nothing will ever unsettle us again. And he will strengthen you because you will be exhausted from the suffering you've endured. That he will establish you. Meaning, pointing to the fact that you will never go back there again. Don't you look forward to a world where there will never ever again be any kind of suffering? The older I get, the more pains I have, right? The older I get, the less hair I have. 
The older I get, the harder it is to lose weight, right? The older we get, the, the further we go along. And those are, those are trite, simple, humorous things. There are people that are dealing with real struggles and real suffering and real persecution. And we're headed to a world where none of those things will ever happen again. We will never go back to those. What I think Peter would say to us is don't quit before you get there. Don't quit before you get there. Don't leave the stadium in the fourth quarter. Continue entrusting yourself to him. The same God who called you into his eternal glory will also enable you to persevere until the end. And the fifth admonition today from this passage is don't try to do it all alone. Don't try to do it by yourself. Verses 12 through 14, by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. We don't exactly know who she who is at Babylon, who is also chosen, is. There are some that would say that this is Peter's wife. There's a case that's been made for, for this being Peter's wife. This is probably unlikely, but uh, there has been a suggestion here that this is Peter's wife. There's been a suggestion that Mark here is his actual biological son, that Mark also sends greetings to you. He refers to him as his son. But more than likely, what Peter is referring to here is she who is at Babylon who is also chosen. He's probably talking about the church at Rome. Rome is often referred to as Babylon in the Bible. She who is chosen, referring to the bride of Christ who is in Rome. He's probably pointing to the fact that there are Christians. He's already made made reference to it, that as you're suffering, know that you're not alone, that others are suffering just like you all around the world. I think he's calling them to see that they are not alone. And as this letter gets circulated among these churches spread out all through Asia Minor, He wants them to to understand increasingly that they will need one another. That as persecution, the heat of it gets turned up, that they better learn to love one another. Throughout this letter, he has repeatedly told them to love one another sincerely. This is what he's saying to them is, you cannot do this alone. Here he he reminds them they are not alone by pointing them back to the fellowship of the church. She who is also chosen. Mark, probably not his biological son, probably his son in the faith. He says to them, greet one another with a kiss of love. And some of you right now, the only question you can think of is, does that mean we're supposed to greet one another with a kiss of love? Is this prescriptive here for the church? I don't think so. This is a cultural thing, and perhaps we might be better related to one another if we did greet one another with a kiss of love. I don't know. Um, maybe not. Maybe, maybe that would cause church, churches to shrink everywhere. I don't know. I think the point is not for us to look, hey, is this prescriptive? Is he calling us to this? I think the point is he's saying here, love one another. Be involved with one another. Care for one another. That's why he ends and he says, peace to all. All of you who are in Christ. 
He's not writing to an individual believer who says, I don't need the church. He's writing to these families of faith that are scattered everywhere because he knows that's what they are. They will be families who will go with the person through the fire. I talked to you last week about pastors are are called to go with their, their flock through the fire. We all go through the fire together. And as the fire heats up, we become all the more important for that task. I would say to you, church, we need one another. I would say to the individual Christian in the room or who's listening to the podcast, you can't do this on your own. Certainly there are places in the world where believers are the only believer in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an area immediately around them, and they are all alone. And God will sustain them, but that is not our situation here. To look at the church and say, I don't need the church, is to slap God in the face. To say bad things about his bride. We need one another. So Christian, from this this book, this letter to these scattered churches throughout Asia Minor, Peter has taught us a lot of things about suffering. And these are his final words, his parting words to them. Don't try to exalt your strength over God's, but humble yourself under his mighty hand. Don't hold on to your anxieties because he cares for you. Don't be passive. You've got an enemy. He's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour you. So don't get passive. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Don't quit. There is eternal glory coming. Christ himself who called you into it will restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, establish you. Don't try to do it all alone. Press into one another. Bear one another's burdens. You're going to need the ones who are also chosen as you go through the fire of suffering. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your letter to these churches. God, you've preserved it for us, this book of 1 Peter. Lord, I thank you for the privilege of preaching it to your people. God, I pray that we would not take it as something that we simply have gone through and we check off. But God, that the truths that Peter has written, you have preserved, Lord, would become dear to us. Lord, that we would cling to them. God, that you would work these things out in our lives. Lord, that as you say there at the end, as Peter says, This is the true grace of God. Lord, I pray, God, that you would guard our minds against those perverted twistings of the grace of God. And, Lord, that you would help us to stand firm in the gospel. Lord, we don't know what the future holds for Christianity in our context. But, God, I pray for the grace to stand Lord, I pray for the grace to worship you in the midst of suffering and persecution. We don't know what will happen in our own personal lives. What good or what tragedy might come our way. But Lord, I pray that you might sustain us through it. God, help us to cling to you. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you an opportunity to reflect and respond. 
to, to give thought to perhaps the sermon today and these five parting words. Or perhaps maybe the overall thrust of this book. And ask, God, what are you doing? God, what is it that you're doing in my life? God, what is it that you're requiring of me and calling me to? I want to ask you just to give serious thought to that and ask the Spirit of God to move in in your life, to move you to obedient action. Maybe that's just a, God, help me to trust. Maybe that's a, God, I have taken for granted that you care for me. God, help me to cast my anxieties on you. Whatever it is, Whatever it is that God has shown you and called you to this morning, we want to give you opportunity to respond. I'll be seated on the front row. I'd love for you to come speak to me if I can help you. There'll be people that will be in a prayer room out to my right and your left. They would love to pray with you as well. If it's something that requires more time than simply just a few minutes at the the end of a service, then get with me. I'd love to schedule time with you, and, and we'll see what we can do as far as helping you further. But don't. Don't harden your heart and turn away. Trust the Lord today. Let's respond to This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.